Good morning. High school graduation is a big deal. It's an important landmark in the lives of our students as it marks the end of an era and the beginning of the new era in which our students are thrust into the real world, right? Whether they go off to college or join the armed forces or find full-time employment or start paying their own cell phone bill, our, our students are thrust into society at large in a sense and they're asked to become a valuable part of it. And the society and culture waiting for them outside, for many of them, the comfort and security of their parents' homes is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. One of the biggest challenges that our graduates will be faced with and that indeed many of you are faced with is the offensive issue of exclusivity. How can you be so arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? The question may go. It's a tough one. Especially in our cultural climate today, it often leaves Christians timid, retreating with their tail between their legs, as it were, and afraid to actually proclaim Christ and him crucified. So we're going to talk about exclusivity this morning. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 14, Gospel of John chapter 14. This is one of the key passages where Jesus himself defends his divinity and the exclusivity of his salvation. And by the way, Jesus was almost constantly asserting his divinity and his exclusivity in his words and his actions, either directly or indirectly. In Mark chapter 2, he said, son, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, indirectly saying, I'm God. The Pharisees said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, everything you've ever done wrong in your life has ultimately been against me. Therefore, I have the right to forgive you. Constantly, Jesus was asserting his divinity. And the modern secularist or relativist today who might want to hold on to Jesus as a nice guy or a good teacher to go up on the shelf with a lot of others, they would do well to listen to the words of J. Gresham Machen. Machen said earlier in the 20th century, Jesus came forward with stupendous claims. Men reject those claims today and yet seek to retain Jesus as the moral ideal of the race. They will not take him as their Lord and their God, yet they are pleased to admire him as the leader of mankind into a higher life. But all such attempts to avoid the issue are vain. Machen said, in reality, Jesus is everything or nothing. He is either God come in the flesh as he claimed to be, or else he is unworthy of the admiration of men. John chapter 14 contains one of these stupendous 
claims. So let's read that together. I'll be reading verse 1 down through verse 11 in John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you with myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father, and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's God's word. I want to say three things to you this morning about exclusivity. Three things. Number one, exclusivity is offensive to the world. Number two, exclusivity is central to the gospel. And number three, exclusivity is unavoidable for everyone. Exclusivity is offensive to the world. It is central to the gospel, and it's unavoidable for everyone. So first, it's offensive. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. This offends people. Proclaiming Christ alone is exclusive. It leaves out all other opinions and religions and worldviews. How is that loving? How is that tolerant? Alan Watts was a prominent defender in the last century of Eastern religion, and he sums up the complaint very well. He wrote a book called Beyond Theology and complained, Christianity is a contentious faith which requires an all-or-nothing commitment to Jesus as the one and only incarnation of the Son of God. Christians are uncompromising, ornery, militant, rigorous, imperious, and invincibly self-righteous. For a time, my wife Holly worked as a nanny for an Indian family. They came from India while we lived in Philadelphia, and they have a strong background in Hinduism. You already know that Hinduism is one of the major world religions. It's a primary Eastern religion, and underlying the Hindu religion is a pluralistic system of thought, a worldview characterized by philosophical and religious pluralism. And pluralism 
claims to be the opposite of exclusivity. In a pluralistic worldview, there is no objectively wrong answer to the question of what we must believe or what is true. So Gandhi famously says that religions are different roads converging to the same point. What does it matter if we take different roads so long as we reach the same goal? He said all religious paths lead to the same spiritual end. And there's a powerful illustration that is often used to promote this type of pluralistic thinking And it goes something like this. Several blind men approach an elephant. And this elephant allows these blind men to touch it and feel it. But they're all blind. And so the first blind man comes up to the trunk of the elephant. And he's holding onto the trunk. And he says, an elephant is long and flexible, much like a snake. The second blind man says, uh... No, you're wrong. An elephant is actually large and, and round and sturdy. It's like a tree trunk as he h- held on to the elephant's leg. And the third blind man would say, no, you guys are both wrong. An elephant is large and flat like a wall as he feels the elephant's side and so on and so forth. And now the moral of the story, of course, is that they're all right, and they're all wrong in a sense. They're arguing with each other about the nature of the elephant, but they can only grasp just a part of the elephant because they're all blind. And so they stand there arguing with, 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 with one another, and the moral of the story, of course, is that they've, they've got just part of the truth, each of them. Each blind man could feel only part of the elephant. Nobody could actually see the entire elephant. And so it is with the world's religions and spiritual reality. According to the illustration, the arguing over what's true and what's false and what's right and what's wrong by different followers of different religions is pointless and silly because after all, each unique religion is simply part of the greater whole. At first glance, that is an attractively humble claim about spiritual reality. A follower of this view would claim, would have to claim, that they cannot condemn anyone else's view because they admit that all views are incomplete in a sense and only part of the greater truth. Now, when Holly was a nanny for this family, Holly was, she had many opportunities to uh, discuss hard difficult issues about faith with them as she got to know them. And one of the most difficult issues that came up again and again was this diametrical clash here between Christian thought and Hindu thought in terms of exclusivity and pluralism. According to her employer, the mother of this family, Holly was simply holding on to a valid part of the elephant. And Hollywood say, no, this isn't just part of the greater truth. This is the truth with a capital T. Holly's employer would say, no, there, there are no false religions or inferior religions. Christianity is valid and valuable. Just don't say that it's the only valid faith. 
And that's where it got tough. Because her critique of Holly's beliefs looks very inclusive and welcoming. She wouldn't say that her Hinduism was absolutely right, the only right one, and therefore Holly's Christianity was wrong. Instead, she would say that Holly's Christianity is as equally true and beautiful and meaningful as her Hindu faith. And when the question got turned around, Holly appeared to be the exclusive and intolerant one claiming that Christianity alone is true. So how do you tell somebody that you believe their religion is wrong when they just told you they believe yours is equally right? That's offensive. No matter what faith system a person holds to, if it's not the gospel, then the exclusivity of the gospel will be offensive. Even foolish That's why if you were here last week, you remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, the gospel is the very fragrance of life to the believer, but it's the stench of death to everyone else. It's why in Acts chapter 4, even the religious leaders were, as the text reads, greatly annoyed at the gospel preaching of Peter and John. In the world in which our students are about to venture off on their own, pluralism and and relativism, maybe pluralism's cousin, the idea that there isn't any kind of absolute truth that we can really know, you got to decide what's true for yourself, everything's relative. Those are the dominant ideological forces. We must never claim that anyone's beliefs are false. It's very politically incorrect. You can choose to believe what you want, what's true for you, probably isn't going to be true for me, but we just both recognize that they can be both equally invalid and true for ourselves. Everybody has to come to their own conclusion about what's true and what's right. To go against the grain here and to preach Christ alone will almost immediately label you as arrogant, intolerant, and exclusive. John Stott was commenting on Acts chapter 4 with the greatly annoyed religious leaders. And John Stott said, At a time when religious pluralism is widespread, such claims are never going to be popular. Nothing less, however is the implication of Jesus' incarnation. If in Jesus, God has come among us in person to reconcile his rebellious lost world, it follows necessarily that through him and him alone is the way to God. Stott said the exclusiveness of Christ's salvation is simply the uniqueness of his divine person. And as unpopular as it is, as offensive as it is, exclusivity is central to the gospel. It's crucial to the gospel. Second point, Paul Washer wrote an excellent trilogy called Recovering the Gospel. Paul Washer is a preacher and evangelist who's very concerned about the lack of clarity and understanding and faithfulness to 
the gospel today. And so in one of these books, he says, the true gospel is radically exclusive. Jesus is not a way. He is the way. All other views or all other ways are no way at all. If Christianity would only move one small step toward a more tolerant ecumenicalism and exchange the definite article the for the indefinite article a, the scandal would be over and the world and Christianity could become friends. However, whenever this occurs, Christianity ceases to be Christianity. Christ is denied and the world is without a savior. Remove the exclusive nature of salvation and you remove salvation. This isn't an optional part of the Christian faith. You can argue with each other about the age of the universe. You can argue with each other about what the millennial reign of Christ actually looks like and means according to scripture. You can even argue with each other, dare I say it, about which mode of baptism is most supported by the Bible. You could, but you can't argue about this. You cannot argue about the you cannot have different opinions about the exclusive nature of salvation. Deny the exclusivity of Christ and you deny Christ. The Bible from beginning to end ultimately points to and centers on and orbits around the death and resurrection, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our only suitable substitute for us in judgment. Our only hope for true, unending life is Jesus. There isn't any hope in anything else or in anyone else. According to the Bible, according to Jesus, not all religious paths lead to the same spiritual end. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter managed to greatly annoy the priests and Sadducees, Peter made the landmark statement in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The language there is not ambiguous. It's not blurry. There is not a lot of room for interpretation. And as Al Mohler says, let us not be playful with what Scripture tells us about salvation. Jesus Christ is the central figure in the Christian faith. Confessing Jesus as Lord and embracing his life, transforming grace and forgiveness is the only way to be reconciled to God. According to biblical Christianity, if you put your hope and trust in anything other than Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, or in anyone other than Jesus, you will not be saved. And according to biblical Christianity, everybody puts their hope and trust in something. Either Jesus, either the gospel, or something else, something created. A good thing that is turned into an ultimate thing that defines the person's hope and meaning and purpose. If it's not Jesus, you will not be saved. You stand before God in righteous judgment, not grace. You will receive the just punishment for your moral rebellion against him, spiritual death, and eternal existence of self 
centeredness and isolation from God and his kingdom, Peter and John and the other apostles proclaimed this exclusive truth. They were utterly transformed by the risen Christ. Their worldviews were flipped upside down when Jesus walked up to them and started talking to them after having been dead for a few days. And these apostles took this exclusive gospel straight to their public executions for their unwillingness to give it up. This is the core of our faith. But why? Why is it so important for Jesus to really be the way, the truth, and the life? Why can't we just adopt Eastern pluralism into our faith? Why can't we just change the definite article V for the indefinite article A? Why can't we just hold to our faith in Christ alone but not push our beliefs on others and just realize that everybody else has to decide what's true for themselves? Why must Jesus actually be who he said he was in John 14 and elsewhere? Those stupendous claims, as Machen says. Anselm of Canterbury can help us out with this. He said, There is no one who can make the satisfaction of God's judgment but God himself, but no one ought to make it except man, otherwise man doesn't make the satisfaction. Therefore, it is necessary that one who is God, man, should make it. A being who is God and not man, or man and not God, or a mixture of both, and therefore neither man nor God, would not qualify No one can make this satisfaction except one who is truly God, and no one ought to do it except one who is truly man. In other words, as Pastor Gary might say, only man should pay the price, but only God could pay the price. According to a biblical understanding of reality, you and I are really, really messed up. In fact, according to a biblical account of reality, we are so characterized by evil and rebellion that we can't actually fully understand just how messed up we really are. That's why Jeremiah the prophet asks, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? The fundamental problem with humanity, the way, the the reason the world is the way it is, is our moral rebellion against the moral foundation and standard of God himself. That's the problem. And according to a biblical account of reality, this problem has, by God's extraordinary grace, one solution. The solution is judgment. We exist and rely and depend and live our lives oriented with an understanding of justice. That's why we have police officers and courtrooms and jails and prisons. If you commit a crime, you have to pay for it. You know why we're that way? It's because we're made in God's image, and he is that way. In fact, he's the ultimate standard and foundation of our very understanding of what justice is. And according to justice, someone has to pay for our moral crimes. In the Old Covenant, innocent animals were killed sacrifice for God's people, serving as a substitute in judgment so that they wouldn't have to bear the punishment themselves. Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is 
death. You and I deserve physical and spiritual death for our rebellion against our Creator. But He graciously provided a system of sacrifice whereby a substitute can die in our place so that we can live. That system is outlined, elaborated, and exemplified in the Old Testament. And this solution is culminated for all of history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only man should pay the price. You and I alone deserve the just punishment for our rebellion. But only God could pay the price. Jesus alone, the God-man, God in the flesh, is able to bear the ultimate punishment for his people himself and then victoriously emerge from physical and spiritual death into life on our behalf. It's the greatest rescue mission in history. John Calvin wrote in uh, the Institutes, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not in whatever you decide is true for yourself, you might become the righteousness of God. Not in the greater unknowable truth that all religions are just part of we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from Christ, we will not become the righteousness of God. Apart from Christ, we will freely choose to be cut off from the righteousness of God forever. Richard Phillips is the author, the editor of uh, the book Only One Way. And Phillips tells us why the uh, uh, exclusivity is not only central to the gospel, but it's a beautiful part of the gospel. Phillips says, Those who recognize and confess their sin, having realized their desperate predicament before God, have no complaint that he has provided only one Savior. A man dying of thirst in the desert does not complain to stumble upon only one spring of life-giving water. A man dying of cancer does not object that there is only one person who donates the blood marrow that matches his own and saves his life. And the sinner, gazing upon the otherwise unavoidable prospect of unremitting corruption in this life and just eternal condemnation in the life to come, does not object to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who lovingly bore for us the hell our sin deserves, and say, why must my soul be saved in only this way? That's not the heart attitude of a Christian. 
of a sinner saved by grace. So exclusivity is offensive to the world. It's central to Christianity. And lastly, exclusivity is unavoidable for everybody. That's the twist. What do I mean by that? Exclusivity is unavoidable for everybody. There's an ongoing heated discussion about exclusive beliefs and absolute truth and pluralism or relativism. It's a discussion that's been going on since the fall of man, and we certainly see a lot of it in the pages of the Bible. And this discussion depends on an understanding that you can actually choose to fall into one of the two categories. You can choose to hold exclusive beliefs or you can choose to embrace pluralism and see that all views and religions are equally valid paths. But I'd like to suggest that that view, that dichotomy, is in fact a false dichotomy, that in fact this view is a myth, that in other words, true, consistent pluralism is impossible. Think back to the illustration with the elephant and the blind men. There's a British theologian named Leslie Newbegin, uh, a man named Leslie Weird, but it's true. He was a missionary in India for many years, spent much of his life preaching the gospel to the highly pluralistic culture in India. And he ran into this illustration with the blind men and the elephant all the time as his exclusive Christian beliefs were criticized. And finally, he, uh, he writes about how one day it just hit him. The only way you can tell the story of the blind men and the elephant is if you yourself are not blind. The story is told from the point of view of someone who isn't blind. How could you possibly know that each blind man only sees or grasps part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? So Newbegin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And he said, the story is told from the point of view of the king, who is not blind, but can see that the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold part of the truth. But if the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. He continues elsewhere, there is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any of us can grasp. But if if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. So when the graduates are confronted with pluralism, when you are confronted with pluralism, we must gently ask the question, how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you just claimed none of the religions have? Consistent pluralism is impossible. If you peel back the layers of the worldview and get right down to the core of it, you will find the same basic patterns of exclusivity that you see in all other 
religions. At the end of the day, the pluralist still has to be exclusive in his pluralism. He still has to believe that what he thinks about reality is, in fact, right. And therefore, opposing views are wrong. So in the debate between absolute truth and exclusive beliefs and pluralism, it's not actually a debate at all. It's not even one or the other. Every system of thought, every worldview is at its very core exclusive. Every person has a set of exclusive beliefs. Tim Keller brilliantly articulates the problems in a pluralistic worldview in a book called The Reason for God. Keller says, skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes that God is unknowable or that God is loving but not wrathful or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everybody dropped the traditional religion's views of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, then so should this one. If it is not narrow to hold this view, then there is nothing inherently narrow about holding traditional religious beliefs. And he drives the point home. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than it is to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. In other words, we are tapping into now a powerful and wide-reaching principle. Every doubt about Christianity is ultimately an alternate faith assertion. Every doubt you could have about the Christian faith ultimately rests on an alternative faith assumption. If you want to say, I think religions, all religions are equally valid. No one's view of spiritual reality is superior to anyone else's. If you want to say that, realize that that statement is itself a faith assertion. It cannot be proven. And it is itself a view that you think is superior to the Christian view. So ironically, you're doing what you forbid others to do. Everyone has a set of of exclusive beliefs. Don't say Christians might have exclusive beliefs, but I don't. I'd argue that you haven't really examined your beliefs deeply enough. Exclusivity is unavoidable for everyone. So the real question then is not which beliefs are exclusive and which beliefs are not. And the question is not, do you really think that you have the truth? Everybody thinks they have the truth. The real question is, which set of exclusive beliefs is actually true? Or further, which set of exclusive beliefs will lead to a humble 
peaceful, non-superior attitude toward people with whom you differ. Exclusive beliefs, fundamental beliefs, ultimately and inevitably lead to terrorism. Just look at 9-11, someone might say. Anybody with exclusive beliefs, fundamental beliefs, they actually think they're right and everybody else is wrong, that's going to ultimately lead to violence and terrorism. Here's a comeback for you. Have you ever heard of an Amish terrorist? I haven't either. And if an Amish person is not a fundamentalist, then I don't know who is. See, it's not fundamentalism that's the problem. It's not exclusive beliefs that are the problem. The issue is what your fundamental is. What is at the center of your exclusive beliefs? You know what's at the center of the exclusive belief of the gospel? The creator of the universe, suffering in our place. Verse 6 of John 14, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus claims to be the exclusive way to the Father, the exclusive way to salvation. But how did that actually play out? The Son of Man must suffer many things, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. He would go on and give his life as a ransom for many. At the center of the Christian faith is a man on a cross dying for his enemies praying for their forgiveness. Anybody who really thinks through the implications of that will be led to love and respect even their strongest opponents. We're saved in Christ alone, by grace alone. That means that you can't take credit for any part of your salvation. Indeed, you can't take credit for anything at all. If you're moved and transformed by the gospel, it eliminates any sense of superiority that you used to have. You have exclusive beliefs, just like everybody else. But you can't think you're better than anyone else because you know you're not. You know that you're a dirty, rotten sinner saved by the grace of God. Not on the basis of of your goodness, you have none, but on the basis of Christ. So the fundamental, exclusive belief in Christ alone as Savior and Lord ought to move us to love and respect all people, knowing that our salvation doesn't make us any better than anyone else. It is our righteous Savior and, and King who loves us sacrificially and and gives us salvation sacrificially, and that will push us to reflect such sacrificial love in our own lives. You might be called an arrogant bigot for claiming Christ alone, but you will not act like one as you truly seek to follow Christ alone and love your neighbor. Our salvation doesn't depend on our work at all. It depends entirely and exclusively on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Have you repented of your sin and trusted him as Lord and Savior? 
We're going to sing a closing song together. So as the worship team comes forward to get prepared for that, I'll invite each of you to stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to see the beautiful truth of the exclusivity of Christ and the salvation he offers. Help us to see ourselves rightly with respect to who you are and how you've made us. Help us to see our sin rightly and our desperate need for a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We need help. And Father, may we not complain that there's just one way. May we marvel that there is a way. May we not complain that there's just one spring of life-giving water. May we drink of it. May we drink of the living water that, that gives us eternal life because of who Jesus is and what he did. And Father, allow that to push us out into this world with lives of great humility, not arrogance, lives of great love and respect toward all people, not condemnation. Help us, Father, to be more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.